Hello, welcome back to Oh God, What Now? I'm Andrew Harrison. Today, we are doing the Ogwen time warp again. We're recording on Wednesday. Those triple by-elections are on Thursday, and non-Patreon people will be listening on Friday, by which time you'll know the results. We don't. We're trapped in the past, like General Zod in the Phantom Zone. But fear not, we are recording a special post-election emergency cast on Friday morning with Jacob Jarvis, Alex Andreo, and Zoe Grunwald, and they'll be making sense of it all for you in the distant future, which we can have no comprehension of. On today's show, though, the backlash against Labour's plans for the two-child cap on benefits continues to swirl. Should we judge Starmer on a record he doesn't even have yet? And why are measures once described as the worst social policy ever so stubbornly popular with British voters? Plus, in a new irregular series, we're going to be looking at some of the big headaches that the next Labour government, Touchwood, will face. This time, defence. There's war in Europe, China's increasingly assertive, and the British economy is badly weakened. Can a Starmer government make the British armed forces fit for purpose in a world that is stretching them to breaking point? And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, the Consumer Pint Index. Can the inflationary mess we find ourselves in all be tracked back to the price of a pint? Let's meet today's panel. Arthur Snell is the host of Doomsday Watch and the author of How Britain Broke the World. Hello, Arthur. Hello, Andrew. So Conservative MP Tobias Elwood has come in for some stick this week from his own party for saying that Afghanistan has been transformed under the Taliban and that we should reopen the British embassy in Afghanistan. He said that solar panels are appearing everywhere and the opium traders all but disappeared and that reopening the embassy would help press for women's rights. Is he right about this? And if he is, even if he is, should he be keeping quiet about it? Yeah, it's a very interesting take. I've got time for Tobias Elwood because he's, you know, that rare thing is a Tory MP who'll say publicly positive things about the EU, even now. Credit to him, he went to Afghanistan. He, he's not just sitting sitting in his armchair. But I suppose my question would be twofold. One is, yes, the Taliban has brought security. And of course, that was always the thing that the Taliban said that they would bring. And that's how they managed to gain a measure of support among elements of the Afghan population. But the second point is, whether or not we open a British embassy, it's not clear to me that that will change the degree to which the Taliban decides to change its stance, for example, on women's rights. So I sort of admire him for sticking his neck out, but I'm, I'm not clear that the argument is completely coherent. Do you think that uh, we are likely in any way to ch- change our stance towards them in the in the near future, considering we were so deeply involved in, in the... Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there is this thing where you normalization which you know it technically technical means that we would we would recognize their regime and we'd open our embassy i don't think that's going to happen but i think what you get is a a sort of slow creeping you know normalization in all but name where gradually it, it's easier for them to trade gradually various funds are unlocked gradually uh, various uh, development assistance goes in and actually the presence of a british embassy whether it's open or not, isn't very important. You know, the, the big difference will be made by major donors in the Gulf region and other near powers uh, changing their stance, probably. Hannah Fern writes for the iPaper and frequently hosts our sister podcast, The Bunker Daily. Hi, Hannah. Hello. So uh, in media news, uh, it's been a right nightmare this week. The Sun, Mail and GB News commentator Dan Wooten is under investigation over claims in Byline Times that he offered to pay colleagues to supply him with explicit pictures. Uh, He's claimed it's a smear campaign and that dark forces are trying to bring down GB News. The press's reticence on covering this is in very sharp contrast to the feeding frenzy over Hugh Edwards. What's that telling us? Well, 
first of all, it doesn't tell us anything about the veracity or otherwise of these allegations. Mm -hmm. We obviously won't say any more on that. Very clear on that, yes. What it does tell us is quite a lot about how media lawyers operate. Um, You'll notice, actually, there's less difference between the two stories than you might initially suggest. Both involved a sort of snowballing of the coverage at the point that the alleged or representative of the alleged individual spoke out, so the wife of Hugh Edwards and Dan on his own show. Ultimately, media lawyers are very risk-averse, rightly so. And so that's why we didn't see the naming of Hugh Edwards for many, many days as that story unraveled. And this particular latest allegation comes through a report, long-standing piece of research from Byline Times, they claim is a three-year investigation, which is a sort of younger, more agile title, which has much more um, risk, I suppose, confident Mm. lawyers. They're a, a, a ballsy little title that like to provoke. So they went with it. And of course, you don't see the others coming forward at first because the advice from the legal rooms of all of the national titles will be to hold off and wait till there's more understood about the allegations. So if the one thing that you take away from this is why are are these titles not reporting, it's simply because they're doing their job of making sure that whatever they report is accurate and legally justifiable. So I think we can be confident that this is not about cover up. It's about the media operating in the way that it should. But listeners might say that there's no more or less to this story than there was to the story that turned out to be about Hugh Edwards. One appears all over every newspaper going. The other is has to be almost dragged into, into the newspapers. Is it simply because one is about the BBC and the other isn't? Partly. Everybody has an interest in the BBC. Everybody pays a licence fee to consume it. So it's, there's that broader um, kind of public interest. But it's not just that. Actually, the BBC itself was putting out statements. Mm. So they were reportable on at, throughout that period um, until uh, we had the situation where Dan Wooten made a statement himself. There wasn't much that, 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 that those titles could safely report. So I, I, think, I don't think there's uh, much of a difference, actually. It's just how the information was flowing out that, that, that was uh, the difference between the two. <laughs> The row over Keir Starmer's decision not to scrap the Conservatives' two-child benefit cap rumbles on. The Guardian reported a bad-tempered meeting of the Parliamentary Labour Party on Monday, where apparently almost every question to Deputy Leader Angela Rayner was about that policy. Frustrated MPs were calling it a mistake and urging Starmer to reconsider. Elsewhere, the very online left got the hashtag SirKidStarver trending on Twitter, and there's even been talk of a coup to install Ed Miliband as leader, an idea which Ed Miliband himself called nuts. Child Poverty Action Group estimates that removing the limit would cost £1.3 billion a year, but it would lift a quarter of a million children out of poverty immediately. Unfortunately, however, this benefits cap is popular with voters. 60% of people in a YouGov survey last week said it should be retained, including Labour voters by 47% in favour to 35% against. Should Starmer stick with his laser focus on winning, or is this cap just too cruel to continue? Hannah, the the two-child cap is pure Osborne austerity politics. It's almost performatively nasty. Has it even worked in its stated aims of getting poor people into work, reducing the number of births down the income scale? Um, Short answer to that, no. And you described in the intro how this has been labelled the worst social policy ever. Mm. That quote comes from the academic um, who at LSE who co-authored a study which was published actually just last month in June. which demonstrated how fundamentally it doesn't work. That though there is 
these parents who have more than two children have no incentive nor any uh, ability to move into work. The whole policy was designed to create what was called by Osborne at the time as uh, an income effect, um, which the idea is that it would push, it would reduce incomes, household income so much that there would suddenly be a push into employment that hadn't been there before. But when you don't have the childcare in place, affordable childcare, and when you don't have jobs that are um, flexible enough to allow working parents to wrap around school and other commitments, and when you don't have the training in place to upskill parents who have been out of the workforce for some time, the income effect simply doesn't exist. There are no jobs for these people to go into. And as a result, all that happens is those households are impoverished. And that's what's happened. There are 1.5 million children affected by the, the benefit cap. Um, and 1 million of those are living in poverty. And this policy actually costs the country much more in the long term than it saves in not handing out the benefits to the third child and beyond. Because you end up with children growing up in poverty, we know is directly linked to worse health in later life, to um, less, less good educational outcomes, employment outcomes, and all of that. So we're simply storing up uh, problems that are expensive to the state further down. It's baffling. So why is Starmer being so obstinate about it? I mean, after COVID, £1.3 billion doesn't even seem like that much money when you stack it up against the amount that was squandered on various um, PPE and, and, and so forth. In fact, Labour says that the VAT it's going to put on private school fees will raise about £1.6 billion anyway. Why is he sticking to it so obstinately? He must be sticking to it because it's popular. It is popular. The majority of citizens support it, including almost half of Labour supporters. The reason they support it is because they don't know very much about how it operates and the costs and mm. benefits or, or lack of, um, because we don't have very good you know, social policy reporting in this country. There's really not very much detail given to how um, how benefits work and how they, uh, where they're operating effectively and where they're not. So, of course, they're under-informed, and it plays into that benefit scroungers narrative, which yeah. unfortunately is well embedded into our political psyche. That's why he's sticking with it. The kind of the, the the sort of elevated end of it is that Labour has to uh, appear financially and fiscally credible, but ultimately, you know, it, it, it's an Osborne era. Um, it's a know nothing policy, isn't it? It's designed to appeal to a bloke in a pub who gets angry that somebody on benefits has got a flat screen television, even though they're the only kinds of television you can buy these days, and is angry that uh, unemployed unemployed people have got mobile phones, even though mobile phones are a necessity of life now. It's reflexive, isn't it? It's bang on. That's exactly right. It's it's the whole curtains closed in the morning thing. Why are they getting to laze around looking after their children at home when I have to go out to work? Um, that's uh, as those the studies have shown. One as recently as June. That's simply not the the problem. The problem is that we don't have uh, a, a working environment that encourages parents into work at all. This is why we have people stuck on benefits. Um, but but um but you know. It's easier to make out like everyone's personally responsible for their financial plight, which simply isn't the case. What makes it so obvious to me that this this backlash that Starmer has faced and that Labour is now facing um, the, the shadow cabinet is that it's it's such an own goal for them because even Corbyn didn't commit to scrapping it in his manifesto. So there were ways around answering the questions yeah. that were coming at him about this that didn't involve having to say, no, we will keep it. There were other options talking about reform. His major policy is a significant overhaul of universal credit and the benefits system. Why not talk about that? That's yeah. a positive message about looking again at how benefits are, are, are carefully targeted and their outcomes. 
he didn't do that. He pandered to this uh, narrative, which it's it's really inexplicable because it's such an own goal. I mean, I know I'm a terrible fanboy, but I look at this and I go, what would Blair do with this? He would absolutely box it up immediately. He would be able to make the case for investment, for why poverty is, is uh, harms all of us. He'd also make the connection between who's actually on benefits. It's not purely the uh, you know, the stereotypical, you know, 25 kids scroungers that you see appearing on the front of the of, of the, the song. Pretty much, you know, a large number of people in this country, a sizable minority of people in this country, receive benefits of some sort. And oh, you could really... the majority of people on Universal Credit are in work. There you go. So, you know, this is where much mm. as I want to... I really want Starman to succeed. I want to support him. I just think, you know, your communication skills, you, you know, you're, you're, you're not a blur. I do wonder if he walked into this one simply feeling like he had to say it rather than it yeah. being a pre-planned line. Because as you say, the evidence is all there to describe how this is a failure of a policy that's impoverishing children. You use play to children, you yeah. pull on the heartstrings, while also failing to deliver you know, a financial benefit to the state overall, the taxpayer. So something definitely went wrong. And yeah. no wonder people like Meg Hillier and others are furious. Arthur, um, after Liz Truss and Quasi Quarteng, uh, is you can't trust Labour on the economy still quite the Achilles heel that it used to be? I mean, you can make the argument that that no, it isn't. And and I know that because of the Kamikaze uh, era, oh, not even era, episode, um, that, that <laughs> you know, Labour has, has got more trust. But I think I imagine that if you're sitting in, in the leader of the opposition's office, what you see is not from that, well, we, we've got an easy ride on the economy. It's more that this is a reminder of how quickly you can lose your credibility on the economy. And I suppose that that is where this is coming from. So it, it, it's a kind of, it's this, the ultra caution, the ultra, uh, sort of the anti-complacency, which of course is, is, seems to be the feature of the, of the way Starmer approaches things. Do you get the impression that he's kind of running a kind of sealed not reenactment of 1997 when the kind of con- the control and the fear of saying anything wrong, say, say nothing that's, that uh, could possibly compromise winning becomes the dominant thing? I mean, I can remember at the time, there's an awful lot, just as there is now, there's an awful lot of frustration from people who support the party that it wasn't promising more radical things when it was going to win. And yet when it got in, it had sort of actually did address these things. Yeah, I mean, I think we could debate how far it did address them, but certainly mm-hmm. it's true that particularly later on in 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 the sort of towards the end of the first term into the second term, they certainly they certainly did more. There is a lot of that sort of ninety seven reenactment, but of course the difference being, you know, whatever one thinks of John Major and 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 his Chancellor Kenneth Clark, that their their economic legacy was a really strong one. And, and that made it easier for Labour in its early years, whereas, as we all know, Labour's inheriting a, a fiscal nightmare. But one thing I do wonder is whether or not, coming back to this point that this policy is popular, is it then an own goal? I mean, clearly, the from a perspective of somebody who who follows progressive politics, listens to this podcast, we can all say we don't like it and, and we feel very uncomfortable about it. Uh, but if Starmer is having an opportunity to show the non-politically sort of engaged public that when there's a big debate such as this, he's the guy who stands firm, who doesn't believe in scroungers, all all those kinds of messages which are unattractive to listeners to this podcast, it may be exactly what Starmer wants. And that kind of ruthlessness 
which again we can associate with the Blair era as well, is the sort of ruthlessness that maybe wins you elections. What do you think it says about Britain that 60% of the country supports what is widely seen as a quite a cruel policy? Well, I think it's quite depressing, but you know, Britain has quite high support for the death penalty. Uh, <laughs> we we are we're a country that, perhaps because of media environment, perhaps because of you know wider sort of public culture things, uh, you know, as Hannah said, we we don't we we don't seem to believe in affordable childcare. You know, there are all kinds of things which I think people of of a sort of engaged progressive political hue can find to be. Uh, pretty underwhelming, you know, about the current state of modern Britain. I guess what you see with Starmer, you know, people people who know him well say he's extremely competitive and he really wants to win. And I think I think that is this is not to say he's done the right thing or to say that you I agree with his policy, but that is the way to read his current actions. Hannah, do you think it's it's as simple as it's a very bold and clear way of saying we are not the left. <laughs> Well, that's a bit depressing. Well, yeah, but um, I mean, the, 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 the Corbyn yeah, left the, the people. We're the centre. We understand your and your concerns. Yeah, perhaps. Um, I, I mean, as Arthur said, I think it, it it will resonate with some people. I find it worrying that we have a Labour Party that isn't willing to challenge falsehood. I'm perfectly happy with pragmatism. I think we do need uh, a pragmatic um, approach to electioneering in the run up to the election, but but peddling nonsense to be elected, uh, supporting policies that patently don't work and cost the country more than they save. I can't get behind that. Do you think he'd pay a political price if he stood up to and said, actually, I changed my mind, we're reversing it? Yeah, I think he would, and he won't do that as a result. That's why I think it's a known goal. I, I, I take Arthur's point entirely about how this plays on a much broader um, platform than the one that, you know, this, listeners to this podcast and so on. But it's actually unpopular within his own cabinet. So it's creating tension where there needn't be any. And there were ways around it, of fudging it, talking about reform of the whole system, including that that payment, which he didn't go for. Next up, it's a question from one of our Patreon backers in But Your Emails. Remember, listeners, if you back us on Patreon, your question could come up before our panel. This week, Alice Merry said, I only attend the weddings of people I like. I would only expect to be invited to a wedding of somebody who liked me. How concerning is it to see so many leading, supposedly independent political commentators and podcasters at George Osborne's wedding? <laughs> hmm. So some of the, there's quite a lot of the great and the good from across the spectrum there, wasn't there? There's some odd faces. Including what, one of our own. Let's not go there. What did uh, you, I wasn't there. Absolutely neither was not. was I. I would like to say that I have no chance of ever being invited to the wedding of any of these people. The media in this country is an incredibly closed network where some are in and some are out. And I would like to say I, you know, despite my best efforts, I'm slightly on the edge of. And this comes from schooling, university, early career stage. Mm. So just so listeners know a little bit about me, I do write for the national newspapers now, but I'm 41 it took me till I was 31 to get on the Nationals. I spent my t- 20s on trade magazines. I went to state school. I went to Manchester University. I didn't meet anyone in the media. My family are not a media family. As a result, most of my friendships are co- completely ordinary people. And I've only come across people who you might describe as these kind of great and good types in my you know, mid-30s and so on. And I'm not mates with any of them. And I don't get any of these invites, which I'm kind of fine about. But it does really reinforce the situation mm. that it's a real two-tier system. And if you don't happen to be mates with the right people in your 20s and teens, 
as a journalist, the opportunities are much smaller. So this is not a smallest violin thing. I just want the answer to the question is why do some people have this cozy relationship? It's simply because that's when they got to know their closest friends. We all make our friends in our teens and twenties, and we have a we do not have, live in a meritocracy. And as a result, those relationships are solidified well before the career highs that you know individuals like this from. Yeah, that's what I would say. Arthur, should should uh, political commentators from television and newspapers and so forth, you know, should 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 they uh, step aside from invitations like this? Do you think? I do find it hard to believe that these, any of these people are really actual friends of George Osborne. You know, do you think he's uh, got any friends at all? <laughs> well, in his robot, in robot world, to go down that road. And, and and you know, I I completely accept what Hannah's saying about this sort of you know, you there's there are certain social groups, but I I imagine a lot of those people ha- haven't known Osborne, you know, as undergraduates. So that they're going because because of this sort of professional networking element. But I also think, but then I think, I'd get the invites and I don't. <laughs> so I don't think that's entirely true. Who well, yeah, I mean maybe. I also think though that um, I think people on their second and subsequent marriages have a duty to invite fewer people because I I always feel if if I go to someone's first marriage, then I, it's normally a bit of an effort to go to a wedding, isn't it? You have to book somewhere to stay, and if they do it again, I'm I'm not I'm not like conservative about people getting remarried. Obviously, I don't have any problem with that. But I think when you keep inviting people to your wedding, yeah. you're demanding quite a lot of them. So I think someone who has a big flashy wedding second time round is showing a lack of self-awareness. Also, they've probably already got a toaster. Well, what, yeah, exactly. Why do they need another one? Yeah. And a, a big flashy wedding number two is a bit of a diss on spouse number one as well, isn't it? Well, I, indeed, indeed. So I, I think it shows a lack of class, but then what you don't expect anything less from George Osborne, do you? I only had 40 people to my one and only wedding. What does that say? Who knows? It says you're very selective. You're, you're very discerning. I think it reflects <laughs> well on you. The next, possibly Labour, government is going to inherit a mess of problems. An enfeebled economy, crises in the cost of living and pay, inflation, public services and the public finances in a mess, Labour shortages, and that's all without mentioning the B word. So in the run-up to the election, we're going to start looking at some of those massive headaches where Labour has room to manoeuvre on them and how to cajole our next government, if it's Labour, into the best possible place. This time, we're going to look at defence. On his way out as Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace warned of war on three fronts, a possible direct confrontation with Russia, a Cold War with China, and clashes with terror groups in Africa. After underfunding our armed forces for years, could Britain handle a major military operation? And what can Labour do about that? Arthur Snell is, of course, our one-man defence desk, but also here to help us through it all is politics professor at the University of Kent and senior fellow at UK in a Changing Europe, Richard Whitman. Welcome to the podcast, Richard. Hello. So can you give us, uh, start off by giving us a, a kind of picture of the sort of military landscape Labour's going to inherit? Because it's been out of power for 13 years, perhaps lacking in expertise, but we, you know, we have a very particular landscape right now. We do. I mean, you know, Labour is going to inherit the, the war in Ukraine, uh, as all uh, Europeans uh, are going to have to cope with for the foreseeable future. It's also obviously going to have to cope in an environment in which defence is now sort of pretty front and centre. You know, it's been a bit of a a Cinderella, uh, I think, uh, over the last few years, certainly since the end of the military commitments uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And now it's a real sort of front and centre 
focus because what are we going to spend on defense? We have to spend more. Uh, and what are we going to do to fill in some of the gaps that exist? Because uh, defense perhaps hasn't had the political uh, attention that it's needed up until the the outbreak of Russia's war on Ukraine. Which is not what you'd expect from a conservative government, but you know we are where we are, I suppose. Um, the impression from outsiders like me is that we kind of let everything slide because of the supposed peace dividend at the end of the Cold War and then got caught badly out in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. Is that sort of back of a cigarette pack carton picture relatively accurate? I think it's accurate probably for where the army uh, found itself. And one of the things that the the current government has done is we had a bit of a hiatus because of Brexit. You know, there was the soaking up of huge amounts of political bandwidth where the government might have been thinking about what its place in the world could and should be. We went through a process in which they articulated this idea of global Britain, but it was a sort of slogan uh, in search of content. And it wasn't fairly, it's until fairly recently, sort of early 2021, where we got a sense of what it might mean, and, and in particular, what the implications were for defence. You know, we really did have a, a bit of a holiday, uh, I would suggest, certainly between 2016 and, and 2021, when we could be thinking harder on uh, defence and thinking harder about Britain's place in the world. And then the war in Ukraine, and, and nobody really had the luxury of thinking hard anymore. It was a case of getting on and dealing with this sort of major change in the security situation in Europe. What are the specifics of what's got to be on Labour's plate then? Because we've just had the Conservatives' integrated defence review, which seemed to me, I may be completely wrong, but to be relatively inconclusive. What what are Labour going to have to tackle in short order? Well, I think they're probably going to view the same the world in the same way as the Tories do. So the kind of things that the uh, the government set out that we should worry about, like Russia, like China, and so on, it's difficult to think how they'd be perverse and think about other things to worry about. And the front bench team of uh, have made clear that they're sort of in broad agreement uh, with the things that the government's focused on, with the important exception of the European Union. But uh, let's put that to one side for a moment. I think what the government's going to have to think quite hard about is how much does it want to spend on defence? Uh, the, the current prime minister has said he wants to raise defence expenditure to 2.5% of GDP. That's up from about 2% now. That's a big chunk of change in terms of government expenditure. Does Labour want to do that? Uh, how far is Labour going to commit to all of the things that the current government committed to? That's supporting Ukraine, obviously, but also the existing spending commitments and the kind of things the government has in place, like two aircraft carriers and so on, and all the things that's promised for the future, not least to build a sort of future aircraft with uh, Japan uh, and Italy, and the so-called AUKUS agreement, which means the UK sort of locked into a defence relationship with the US and Australia on submarines. And, and that has some significant spending commitments for the UK, not least because it's going to uh, base a submarine there or a set to base a submarine in Australia from 2027, which would obviously fall in the time period of the next government. Arthur, as, as Richard just alluded to, uh, defence is sometimes the least kind of capital P political part of, of, of politics. You move in these circles. What will the defence community be lining up to tell the next defence secretary, whoever it may be? Well, I think the defence community has always had the problem that it it tells the politician that their service and, and their area of speciality is is the neediest. And, and we do have this, this sort of tradition of a bit of inter-service rivalry. So the Navy will be saying, you know, we've got to continue to run these massive aircraft carriers. 
the RAF, as as Richard mentioned, they're developing this this next generation fighter jet. The army will be saying that the army isn't big enough, and and the Ukraine war points to the degree to which you know a, a classic uh, sort of armored conflict in, in in sort of old style you know Cold War style as opposed to the more modern counterinsurgency ideas you know so all all these people are saying that their thing is a massive priority and yet there isn't enough money for basic things like giving you know military uh, staff families adequate housing and so in that sense it's it's the least political but you could argue it's it's just like all the other areas of politics where you've got decades of degradation of public service and a bit like the NHS you know working off the goodwill of the people who serve in it in this case the armed forces underpaying them underfunding them under equipping them and hoping that you can get away with it and then fun- suddenly you're faced with the prospect of a really serious war against a peer nation not uh, a small counterinsurgency on the other side of the world and it, and you realize that you just don't have adequate resources You've been all over Ukraine for Doomsday Watch, obviously, and we have sent Ukraine a lot of stuff, as well, uh, sort of f- physical material as well as as well as intangible support. Do you think Ukraine has been a bit of a wake up for British defence? Yeah, it has, and for for all all um, NATO allies. So in, in two ways: one, that ultimately that you do have to focus on the security of Europe. You know, the, for a long time, NATO's main effort was Afghanistan, which right now looks pretty quaint. But the other point is actually, and this came up in the most recent, this so-called defense command paper that came out this week, is the inadequacy of our defense industrial complexes across Europe. Ironic in a way, because of course, you know, on the left, some people talk darkly about the defense industrial complex of taking over politics. We don't have an industrial base that can manufacture things like ammunition for artillery, things like that those those famous javelin and Enlaw uh, anti tank missiles. You know the Ukraine Ukrainians have used them all up. We can't really make new ones quick enough. We've enjoyed, of course, peacetime in Europe, and that's that's a wonderful thing, and we can all be very happy for that. But what's happened is that our what you might call our national defence, by which I mean industrial uh, societal resilience in addition to the armed forces themselves, has been completely degraded and, and we're basically not tooled to deal with uh, a wartime situation. Hannah, defence has, has never been a favourite with the Labour rank and file. You know, the party does have its roots in things like CND and even the Peace Pledge Union years ago. Can you see defence getting priority from a cash-strapped Labour government that can't even lift a two-child cap? Uh, yes, but potentially because I think that the roots of the party are not where it is now. If you mm-hmm. think about the Blair years, obviously he very much reset the relationship with um, defence and military intervention. Of course, with not without significant criticism. But um, don't mention the war. <laughs> don't mention the war. But I think Labour became more comfortable during that era with having these conversations about defence. And Starmer has been much closer to Sunak than you might have. Uh, imagined, certainly around the Ukraine crisis. And he's actually pushed Sunak very hard on commitments around defence, suggesting, in fact, that the current review doesn't go far enough. When the government was preparing for the review and talked about 10,000 cuts to troops, troop numbers, he absolutely rejected that and said, you know, that this is not the time for those kind of cuts. We can't justify it. Uh, it's a dangerous suggestion. So I think he is actually... As a, as a leader now of Labour, in a position to show some authority, actually, on defence. But there's also another element. Actually, in terms of pacifying the mail, the telegraph, yes, it will pacify the leader writers. But actually, I'm not sure so sure about the readership, because if you look at the data around 
public perception on where we should be putting money into public services. The support for defence isn't as unanimous as you might expect, even with the Ukraine crisis ongoing. So um, it's not necessarily a publicly, you know, an immediate public vote winner to be pro-defence, pro-extra troop numbers, even if it does pacify some writers in the, you know, the boardrooms of, of those newspapers. Yeah. Richard, before before we started the podcast, you and I spoke about, uh, you know, what are the big unmentionables, the great big things, the big elephants in the room? And you mentioned three things, nuclear weapon renewal, recruitment, which we touched on already, and Scottish independence, if it were to happen, which would leave the rest of the UK with nowhere to moor uh, the nuclear submarines or uh, and, and, and sort of deprive us of a, of, a, of a lot of our access to those kind of strategic you know, sea lanes or whatever it is. Can you tell, put a bit more flesh on the bones? Firstly, n- nuclear weapons, obviously vastly expensive. Where are we in the kind of cycle of renewing them? Well, we're right in the middle of a big cycle, which is we're sort of switching over from uh, the existing fleet submarines to, to a new new fleet. And this is this is phenomenally expensive. I mean, if you look at the plans for defence spending over the next 10 years, it's heading towards uh, about a third of the spending on equipment. Uh, is going to go on on these submarines. Two are well under the way to being built. The third one has just been started. Uh, and obviously, then there's the, the nuclear weapons that go on board. I mean, this also to connect to uh, others' points is this is also highly skilled labor uh, involved in constructing these. And this is, I think, something that obviously plays well uh, with the trade union movement. These are very skilled jobs. There, there aren't enough people, frankly, uh, who are apprenticed and and able to work on those programs. And that's one of the things that the, the government has flagged up, that there is a, a labour problem in these areas. Uh, uh, and, you know, we need to look at how we upskill uh, the workforce to build these. But it is a major order commitment. Uh, but it's also obviously one that politically has caused problems on the left in the past. But when the vote was taken in Parliament to embark on this renewal in, in 2016, it was cross-party agreement. But it is phenomenally expensive. If you're going to carry on doing it, and it's difficult to see how the government uh, would would back out, could possibly back out on the fourth submarine, but you know it wouldn't make the, the deterrent work in the way that works at the moment. It is a very, very big uh, financial commitment. It takes up a significant proportion of what we're planning to spend uh, on defence uh, and obviously locks the next government, uh, whatever that might be, into that commitment. And Scottish independence is what I hadn't even sort of factored in, but the idea that most of the deep water ports that submarines require could. I mean, the, the tide of Scottish independence seems to have ebbed quite significantly this year, but it's not impossible. Where does that leave a British nuclear fleet? Well, where we have the fleet based at the moment, one of the things that we provide the US is the uh, is the basin for those submarines oh. uh, in Scotland. They could be relocated and work's been done to look at how they could be relocated to England, but obviously that's also incredibly expensive as well. So you'd be taking on uh, an additional cost uh, if you were to see Scottish independence. You'd also be losing the, you know, the bases and other uh, training uh, facilities that you had in Scotland. Perhaps Scotland's in Scottish independence a bit like Brexit. I mean, we didn't really think about what the, the cost or consequence of the Brexit process would be. If you look at government documents, obviously they're not going to flag up the fact that Scottish independence would be something that would be a considerable, uh, have considerable impact on on the UK's uh, security uh, and defence. 
Uh, and of course, the Scottish government is committed to being uh, non-nuclear, but also wants to be in NATO. So it has its own problems to to square. But um, it's the sort of untalked about, unthought about, and too difficult to think about uh, question. And obviously, it goes into abeyance uh, as the uh, the Scottish National Party has, has slipped in terms of the position that it's had in setting the agenda on Scottish independence. Arthur, a lot of listeners will be probably shouting at their whatever they play this podcast on going but what about cyber you're talking about conventional warfare you're talking about planes and boats and infantry and so forth but actually cyber warfare is the likely to be more of the forefront not just in terms of conflicts between states but in terms of protecting our own our own democracies do you, do you think that the incoming labor cabinet and the defense components of labor is alive to this and understands the concerns I, I'm going to be honest, I, I don't know to what extent they are, but I think that what you've got in the current Labour setup is that fairly sort of non-ideological, pragmatic perspective. And, and clearly, you know, this is a very technical area, particularly when you're getting into cyber, but defence in general. And, you know, you tend to have not that many former servicemen, uh, servicemen and women on the Labour side of politics. So you, you don't have that phenomenon that you normally see with the Tories where someone who's been in the army and therefore thinks they know it all already. So my hope would be that, that Labour will, will go and, and listen to what, what the experts, both inside defence, but also, you know, in the wider community, people including Richard and others, you know, in the academic community, because there's a lot to learn. But I mean, you mentioned cyber. And what's interesting is now that people talk about five domains of warfare. So we all know about land, sea and air and then cyber and space. And I suppose for years, people have sort of wondered about those, but those are now real. And and again, the Ukraine war has shown the degree to which extremely fast moving cyber defense and offense is, is absolutely crucial to modern warfare. There are drones that are launched that might work one day and then the next day they've been jammed. And so you need to find a way around that or, or if you're defending, you know, find a way to, to, to jam the drones and those sorts of things are happening happening at a really fast speed so in 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 a weird way and obviously it, it's tragic but in a weird way you know the our, our country and 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 all all modern sort of military powers are learning huge amounts from the ukraine war yeah i think wallace called it a, a laboratory of war didn't he the other day yeah. which is a, a chilling thought but kind of true i guess not to leave Hannah out of this, but we have to tap the expertise of people who really know what they're on about here. That's absolutely fine. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask both of you, firstly, the magic wand question, and secondly, the realistic question. What would you most like to see in terms of a change of defence policy? And secondly, what do you think we're going to get? Richard, can we start with you? What, what, what do we mostly need from the next government and what are we most likely to get? Maybe not to answer the question directly, but uh, a Trump presidency would really create significant problems for whatever government mm. is in power uh, and would really throw up all sorts of questions uh, for you know, the way that the Ukraine war is being fought, you know, the way that the NATO alliance operates uh, and so on and so on. So, you know, in, in terms of sort of Labour's prayers, if you like, I think that would be one of the things that you definitely want to you'd want to pray for not happening because it would just take up a huge amount of time, energy and effort, uh, just sort of backfilling all the stuff that you have now. I think the one thing that, that Labour uh, could do most usefully is to sort out something that Arthur touched on, uh, touched on, which is the, you know, the the state of uh, the package that's on offer to to service people, which is you know the housing, the pay, uh, the general terms and conditions uh, 
for people who commit and serve in the military, which are which are frankly disgraceful. Uh, and uh, you know, the the defence estate, and particularly you know, the housing aspect, is a long running scandal. Um, we haven't allowed rates of pay, particularly at the bottom end in the military, really to to keep up with what we need. And those are going to have to improve significantly if you're going to recruit the kind of people that are going to be needed, that are comfortable with technology, have the skills that are going to be needed for this new form of war, warfare, which is more sort of digitally interconnected. Um, and you won't just you won't get that uh, if you can't offer uh, an attractive place uh, to work. I get the nasty feeling that when we raise every single one of these sectors in shows to come, the conclusion is going to be you're going to need to fix the paying conditions and invest in everything, in fill in the blank here. Arthur, what do our armed services need and our, and our general defence establishment need and what are we likely to get? Well, I think one one suggestion, which is almost, you know, uh, very unusually one that doesn't involve more money, is actually the change in culture around equipment. So there's a particular thing which the British army, sorry, British military in general has fallen into, which is this idea that um, any new piece of equipment has to be specially adapted and made uh, unique for the for the British military. And there are countless case studies of this leading to endless delays and cost overruns. And, and you know, you can talk about the, the SA-80 rifle, which, which became a sort of... Um, uh, you know, it's like one of those weird animals that people make, which is a sort of half half a human and half a dragon and half a whatever. Well, like the and, car and, that and Homer you, Simpson and, designs. <laughs> Remember when Homer Simpson designs a car? Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so you you have that phenomenon. You know, again, the the Ajax fighting vehicle. There are so many of these case studies, and and something that that Ben Wallace, but also James Heapy, the Armed Forces Minister, was saying when they presented this Defence Command paper is that they've got to get past that and, and the sort of 80-20 principle that actually, again, something they've seen from Ukraine is just getting kit that works that you can put into the field and use has got to be more important than spending 12 years perfecting the perfect rifle that by the time it's you know used by all the soldiers is obsolete. Now, the problem with that is that the, the British military have been saying this for decades. So they're, they're going to become more pragmatic and more sensible and more off the shelf and less bespoke. And then they never seem to change to that. I just wonder whether the combination of seeing the reality of modern warfare in Ukraine, plus the real fiscal crisis we're in, will mean that they do actually do that. And what that would do is will save defence a lot of money and actually mean that kit, maybe not the best kit ever invented, but really quite good kit, reaches our you know armed forces in a timely fashion. And, and, and that seems like, and that is a cultural change rather than something involving, you know, the magic money tree. Just to wrap up then, obviously the question, the thing that hangs over all of this is what will Putin do next? Will he expand the war? Will he attempt to draw other countries into it? Is Britain in a fit state to handle expanded land war in Europe? Would we simply be bystanders? Uh, I think the short answer is probably, probably not if it was an extended uh, extended conflict, but but in the short term, I mean, Britain has sort of put its its best foot forward, I think, in terms of the the kind of tripwire that NATO has uh, if Putin was to to cross into to NATO territory. But you know, this is this is where the hard choices have to be made by the UK in the future. You know, it's spending money on nuclear. It's got an expensive navy now with two aircraft carriers. You know, it wants to have these future aircraft. It wants to do stuff in the Indo Pacific. But as we saw with the defence command paper yesterday, it really comes down to bottom line with what we've got in Europe now. How do you best defend the UK in Europe? 
Uh, and what mix do you need to have in the armed forces uh, to do that? And are you willing to spend more on defence? Because that is what it would mean, more on defence to allow the UK to make more of a contribution uh, to the, the defence against Russia. Arthur? Yeah, I mean, I think... Obviously, one aspect of what we've learned from the Ukraine war is that the Russian military is in a pretty parlous state. And not that we should be at all complacent about that, but what we're seeing is the Ukrainians, heroically on behalf of the rest of Europe, massively degrading Russian military. So I, I think the probability of a large war in Europe spreading beyond Ukraine, I think remains very low. But what we, we mustn't forget is all the other stuff that's still going on such as the the possibility of some kind of conflict between the US and China, the challenges associated with the climate crisis, which are not necessarily military ones, but they're certainly security ones. And then uh, the, the fact that whilst the Russian army is does seem to be in a bit of a mess, going back into Russian history, this sort of willingness to suffer more may be the way that they can sort of grind out some kind of a, of a, of a sort of frozen conflict victory. And, 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 and that doesn't make us feel much safer in 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 britain well i hope the uh future cabinet is listening closely to all this we'll be keeping an eye in future richard thank you very much for joining us thank you we've reached the end of the show so what are the stories that have gone under the radar this week hannah what's your under the radar story Okay, mine is a piece of research carried out by a group of cardiologists at a hospital in Boston looking at exercise. And they have discovered that if you do a week's worth of exercise in two days, so cram it all into your weekend, right? you're at the same lower risk of stroke and heart disease as people who are bossing at the gym every day. I'm very excited about this. But don't you die because you've done seven days of exercise <laughs> in two days. Well, actually, seven days, of, seven days of exercise is only 120 minutes. So two hours over the weekend of like, you know, swim for an hour, go to a yoga class. Yeah. Apparently, that's it. You only need to do 120 minutes of exercise a week. And if you do it in two days rather than spreading it out, you know, bit by bit, 30, 20 minute jog every day or whatever. Okay. You're still at a lower risk, so same low risk. Everybody who's sort of like turning up to work in a stinky t-shirt with a towel and having to go and get changed behind a cupboard. They're wasting their time. Joke's on you, yeah. Joke's on you, good to know. Hmm. Arthur, what's your under the radar and can it match that useful life tip? <laughs> I'm afraid it can't. Um, <laughs> no, but mine mine is um, is, is more, more sort of um, global politics stuff. But So people will be familiar with the COP, Conference of Parties, which is this ongoing cycle of meetings to try to deal with the climate crisis. You could argue it hasn't got very far. It may not be widely known, but the, the host of the, this year's one, which is happening in November, is United Arab Emirates, uh, which, of course, is one of the world's great oil producers. So that in itself, you might say, well, that's a bit weird. But it gets weirder because the president, as in the presiding officer of the conference, is uh, a guy called Sultan al-Jabba, who is, at the same time, the CEO of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, so one of the world's greatest hydrocarbon businesses and a, a state-owned company, obviously, in the UAE. So you've got this absolutely insane situation where somebody who is is an integral part of the global leadership of the hydrocarbon uh, sort of doomsday uh, industry is also theoretically uh, managing a conference that's supposed to re- reduce emissions. I mean, it, it talk about 
um, conflict of interest. You can't even begin to get your head around it. And I think it points to something that these climate uh, summits have 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 really failed to actually sort of grab the agenda. So you end up with a situation where a country like the UAE, which has a lot of money, so it can offer to host and it you know it, it can it can pay for all the venues and all the stuff, and they can basically completely twist it to their own agenda, which is of course the maintenance of the hydrocarbon industry. But all this is happening in the week, uh, well, it, it, certainly in the year that uh, we've seen. It temperatures reach the extremes of 60 degrees centigrade in the Persian Gulf, in the very place where this conference is going to happen, which is way past a temperature that human beings can actually safely live at. So it's just, you know, this sort of sense of, of, of heading to the, the edge of the waterfall in the canoe and just sort of blithely paddling away and think, oh, it's all fine. And here we all are. It's uh, definitely, uh, here's a hen house. Let's put a fox in charge of it. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, my under the radar is also climate connected, and it's to do with court cases over protests uh, in in the UK. Climate protesters uh, who are up in court have found themselves in a very strange situation regarding um, defence. Uh, a judge called Judge Silas Reed has ruled that uh, people may not introduce into their defence the long-established principle that jurors have an absolute right to acquit a defendant according to their conscience. And not only has he uh, ruled this out of, of, of evidence, but actually he's been punishing people for contempt of court when they have attempted to introduce this, uh, this as I say, established point of law into their defence. And has actually imprisoned people for contempt of court for reiterating points of established law in court. And the result of this is that climate change activists are now standing outside court holding placards which read, jurors have an absolute right to acquit a defendant according to their conscience, and uh, they themselves may now be subject to legal action for contempt of court. So we're in a bizarre situation where a single judge is able to punish people for raising a point of established law as relates to climate change protest. It's mad. And it's been rumbling for some months, but it's actually there's actually a story in the Times from early June in which an Olympic gold medalist, a priest, a retired police sergeant and more than 20 others should be prosecuted over their court protest in support of fellow environmental environmental activists. A judge has said so we're in a very, very strange situation. What if the defence barrister raises it and they they can't? They can't. This is it's been ruled out of bounds. So. Yeah, um, Judge Silas Reed. I wonder is he going to come and get us on the podcast? If so, nice knowing you. And uh, we'll be broadcasting from uh, a prison near you soon. And that's the show. Thank you, Arthur, for joining us. Always a pleasure. And thank you, Hannah Fern. Thank you. Stay tuned for the extra bit after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional thank you to our patient army of generous supporters. Also, keep an eye on your app because the emergency by-election cast will be landing soon. We don't know what's going to be in it because we're recording three days ago search oh god what now patreon to find out how to support us and get the podcast early we'll see you next time big thanks from me for all your support to rob diston steve parrington and louise welcome to the patreon legions and many thanks from me to izzy lee dan kime and duncan murphy and finally many thanks from me and welcome aboard to tim m-o and somehow we missed you out from December. Apologies to you, Alison McCauley. We'll see you next time. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Podmasters Group Editor, Andrew Harrison, with Hannah Fern and Arthur Snell. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, and the producer was me, 
Alex Reese, with assistant production from Adam Wright. Art direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the extra bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. This week, shut the doors, find the scampy fries from the back, sweep the cat off the bar. It is a lock-in on the podcast. We're looking at the quasi-religious status of the price of a pint. The Office for National Statistics tracks the most important data to people in the UK. House prices, inflation, and most importantly, the price of a pint goes in there. Their data says that the spread is between an incredible £1.50 and £4 in 2010. But soon, the upper end of that price will be almost £8. So with the average house costing about 43,000 pints, what can bitter teach us about the bitter state of the economy? Arthur, what's your drink? I'm quite fond of of sort of real ale, but what I really like, and I suppose this is showing my kind of West Country links, I really do like cider, proper cider, not the fizzy lemonade-y stuff. Flat stuff with twigs in it that gets you blind drunk instantaneously. What is the yes. upper limit of what you pay for a pint out in beautiful rural Britain? Well, it's, it's certainly less than you pay in London. And, and even posh pubs in the Cotswolds, you can normally sort of get away with the five quid ceiling. Five um, quid? Wow. giving it away. Yeah. Yeah. yeah or, well, look, I mean, I am, I've, I'm used to £7, £7.50 and have encountered the £8 pint before. So, you know, I'm scarred by this. Yeah, I went for yeah. a pint with a friend round the corner from the studio the other day. Yes. And, yeah, two points. That was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like to hear the rest of it and get a little bit more Oh God What Now every single week without ads and a day early, then back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, Oh God What Else, every Monday morning and fabulous merchandise too. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>